episode is a really fun one. Uh, I have a great horn player and teacher here, Dan Graboy, and he is a monster. He's, I, I've known his playing for a long time uh, because I was a big fan and still am a big fan of the Meridian Arts Ensemble. And uh, not only that, but he is a horn professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, he is a really interesting guy to talk to. Uh, so welcome, man. How you doing? I'm the I'm same from day to day. <laughs> Getting through. That's right. We were just talking about how uh, our backgrounds were kind of matching here, and we're, we didn't uh, plan this, but we're wearing the same outfit. I don't know if you guys know this if you're watching. We are both wearing our black shirts pretending that we have gigs today <laughs> and uh yeah well welcome man welcome to music on the rocks it's an honor to be here and can i pour myself a drink uh, yes you can only if you tell us what you're having so beggars can't be choosers in the pandemic era so the liquor store had curbside delivery and i took what i could get i've never heard of airstone scotch but it's not bad. It, and this is a sea cask. It says smooth and easy. So it's not bad. That's how I like it. Smooth and easy is always good. Awesome. So I have poured myself a glass. What are you drinking? I am having a, uh, a Salt Lake City vodka here. Kidney vodka. And, wow. You know, I guess because you have to hide out when you, when you have vodka here. And it's uh, <laughs> so mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so I'm having a vodka tonic. Cheers. Cheers. To health, health and happiness. Yeah. yeah. So tell me what you've been up to. I mean, I, we've all been on this weird, crazy hiatus, uh, forced hiatus. And uh, I know a lot of people are taking this time to be really creative, which is really cool for everybody in music right now. But um, what, what have you been up to? Well, I guess I can tell you the professional stuff I've been up to and then maybe some of the non-professional stuff I've been up to also. Um, so we shut down on Friday the 13th of March. That was the day that, that was the day before spring break and that's when we found out that we weren't coming back. Of course, at first it was like, we won't, won't come back for a few weeks, but it was pretty evident that it was gonna be the rest of the semester. So the first thing that I did was I set myself a goal of two weeks to write and have published a daily routine for my students because I thought I wouldn't be there to check in with them. And so I, I did, I actually got the thing published in 10 days. Um, so that was fun, a, pro a project that was a huge hurry, figuring out like what kind of drills can I write that'll take about an hour that will uh, allow people to practice afterwards. They won't kill them from for endurance and that will be worthwhile. And, uh, and I did that and then I set it all in finale and made it pretty and sent it off to my publisher. And that was pretty cool. I was really proud to get that thing out fast. 10 days. 10 days, start to finish. That we, sold the, we sold about uh, 16 or so on the first day. That's awesome. And yeah, that was great. So I did, did that and I'm, um, I'm practicing actually and I'm writing this giant piece for horn and electronics um, and going to be recording it. I just yesterday braved the trip to my uh, electronic music studio to get some recording gear mm -hmm. so that I can record at home. 
And then, you know, so that's basically the stuff. Oh, and I'm teaching my students. I decided to, for those students who were willing to really work hard, I would teach them this summer. And so for free. So I've got six students from my studio who are doing that. And then I picked up a student from Panama and a student from Nigeria. And uh, they're both really talented. And I'm actually doing a fundraiser right now to try to raise some money for uh, for a new horn for the student, the Nigerian student, because his foreign, horn actually the other day broke into two pieces, just all the solder joints let go. And the, yeah, it's unbelievable. So the guy needs a new horn and we're more than half, we're about two thirds of the way towards getting him a new horn, which is, which is great. That's really cool, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Well, I want to go back to uh, like really quickly, uh, this warm up, I mean, it's a warm up book. I call it a drill book. I call it the daily drill for horn players. The daily drill for horn players. And you put it together quickly, but obviously it's all ideas that you've had for, I mean, that you've instilled in your own playing. Or... Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wildly inventive about this. You know, it's open overtones and lots of arpeggios and scales and some big rips where you cover every note in between. And it's just the kind of things that uh, we should be doing every day i mean there's one absolute rip off from the farkas warm-up um but you know it's just a bunch of drills in different do going through all the keys yeah well i think it's really important to have these kind of things in in book form because people tend to do them more you know, yeah if it's sitting there it's on your stand and you're like oh yeah you know what i need to cover the basics today uh, exactly every day <laughs> you also said that you were writing a piece for electronic music and horn yeah so i'll take you through some of the history of that yeah, i'm curious to know and also when the electronic part of it do you program all the electronics also yeah so it's a long story but we have time right oh we got all kinds of time okay so one of the amazing things about an academic job and i got this academic job at age 46 so I had taught before that since I was out of school, I've been teaching, but not full time at an institution. And you come to this institution and they dump a bunch of research money in your lap, which is, as you know, for a musician, no one ever gives you money right. ever. Right. Right. You, they, you work your lips to the bone to get that money. And so I was, I arrived and it's like, here's a pot of money, do what you want. And so I had, been interested in learning uh, how to use Ableton Live, which is electronic music. It's a digital audio workstation, a DAW. Uh -huh. um, it's a way to create electronic music. And um, as you know, I've played a ton of rock and roll with Meridian. Right. And um, as you probably also know, the horn in rock and roll is a little problematic because we have this angelic sound mm -hmm. and rock and roll is often dirty and you bend around and you hit the edges of notes. All the things that we've spent years and years and years learning not to do are the things to do. And I, I always thought if I could play my horn through some effects, I could, you know, write some rock and roll and play in the way that I, that I would really want to hear it. So I bought Ableton Live and I bought a good computer and I bought a couple of little effects pedals and a microphone and some speakers. Right. And, and I actually recorded a CD using all that equipment, music that I wrote, basically like rock and roll horn. And um, 
the horn, most of the horn parts are, are processed. So I played them, um, I didn't edit them. Most of them were like I'm improvised and then I created a piece around the improvisation. Oh, cool. uh, and then I wrote um, bass part and a drum part and brought real people, real musicians in to record those on top. And it was a cool project. It was really hard and, and it was great to, to see that thing through to completion. So I fast forward, a, you know, a few years and I saw an email came across my desk in the middle of the summer. And it said, uh, the second round of UW 2020 grants is now available for application and it's available to people in the human arts and humanities. So I was like, oh, grant, that sounds good. I don't know what this is. So it turns out that they had had the, the year before they'd had the first round of this grant, which was um, the, the, well, the university is funded by this organization called the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So they hold all the research dollars and they're private enough to be untouchable when the state is making budget cuts. So it's a great situation. And um, there's a drug warfarin that's named after Wharf um, because it was invented with Wharf funding and vitamin D that we actually ingest was synthesized by scientists subsidized by Wharf and they do a ton of science funding here at the university, of course. So here they were, um, offering these large equipment grants because they found that they would have to buy an electron microscope for the chemists and then the next year the microbiologists would say we need an electron microscope and then the next year that something else would you know the zoologist so they they created this program where if you bundle together with some partners you could apply for one electron microscope with a you know, that was shared and so uh, this very wise administrator said, you know, people in the humanities don't have access to any kind of funding for this kind of stuff. And, and often they need equipment. And she, and she convinced them. And is this too much detail for you? Okay. So, so they announced that um, we could apply and I actually called that administrator and I said, I have this idea to put together an electronic music studio so it wouldn't be a piece of large equipment. It would probably be like 150 pieces of equipment that made an organism um, when used together. And she said, you should apply. And I applied. It was really fun because I just, I called all kinds of people. I called a lot of people cold. Uh, one of our composition faculty had a brochure stuck up on her bulletin board um, that was talking about the, the, NYU, I think it was NYU New Electronic Music Center, and it was unbelievable. So I looked up the director and called him cold and said, hey, I'm putting together this grant. What should I ask for? And he had all these ideas. And McGill University has amazing electronic music, so I called them, and everybody said, oh, you should get this, you should get that, you should get this other thing, and I put everything on the list. And, um, and then I have a colleague who does electronic music, and he's like, oh, you should get this these pedals and this, this, and this, that. Yeah. And, and uh, so I put it all together and then I priced it all and it came to $161,121. Holy moly. So that's what I applied for, $161,121. Uh -huh. My grant application went through probably 40 drafts till it was exactly in my eyes perfect. Right. And a couple of months later, I got a letter saying they had given me $161,121. No way, man. Unbelievable. So I went shopping. 
and uh, going shopping, everybody offered me deals. Right. So I ended up with about twenty to thirty thousand extra dollars. So I got to buy even more stuff. Man. So that's how I created this electronic music lab, which is called the Electroacoustic Research Space. Years. This is something that's really important, and it's important for students and, and teachers alike to be thinking about because it took a lot of number one initiative, number two curiosity and just drive to get that kind of thing done. But that's the kind of thing that's going to be useful for not just your projects, but I mean, for, for years to come, like for all these students who come in. And it's a kind of an innovating and perfect timed thing because electronic music, I mean, right now, it's basically all everybody's doing right now. I mean, even if you play acoustically, everybody's hearing you electronically. And so you kind of hit that one in the perfect timing. That timing was good. So, and it's, uh, our students at universities tend to have very little knowledge about music production. I mean, you make these incredible videos, which I love watching and they're done, they're really well done. And you do arranging and the arrangements are great and you play your ass off. And of those three things, probably what you learned in school was to play your ass off. And you probably had to figure out the other stuff yourself. You're exactly right. Yep. And, and that's doable. But, you know, using, you know, to get good equipment, I now know it's very expensive to get good equipment. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that there is this room at school where our students can come and they can learn how to do this stuff. It gives them another thing that can be a part of their career. Well, it's another tool in the tool belt teachers need to realize, and I'm sure a lot of them do, but a lot of people, I'm actually stunned sometimes at how many are just kind of set in this path of teaching where it's like you had your master teacher and the apprentice and they would go off and become a soloist or win a principal job and stuff. We live in a new age now. I mean, everybody needs to know more than just to be able to play really well. I mean, you have to be creative. You have to be an innovator. You have, to, you have to have all kinds of tools in that belt now if you want to make it as a performer, as an artist, and especially now more than ever. And it was hard before all this happened. So that kind of stuff, I mean, I think it's really, really cool. I mean, your students are, are very lucky to have something like that. Well, I love doing stuff. And I, I mean, you really can make incredible sounds and, and be super creative with it. And I you know, the world does not need another recording of Mozart concertos or the Beethoven horn sonata or whatever. And there are great ones. Right. There are great ones out there. So um, this gives me a way to try to be creative with composing and creating new stuff and putting the horn into a new context. And I really like doing that. And that's kind of what having a, a job at a research university is, is all about, is just creating something new. So I do want to tell you about the piece that I'm writing now. My CD that I told you about before that I made with my older equipment is mm -hmm. called Air Names. Uh, and it's called Air Names for a funny reason. I, um, you know, the, the um, Dragon Dictate software eventually became Siri. And when it first came out, version 1.0, I thought, oh, and this was years ago. This is going to be fantastic. Um, I got to get this because I don't want to type all the time. And and so I got it and it was awful and it didn't it didn't understand anything that you said it was just mistranslated everything into into type 
And so one night I just started talking to it. And then the stuff that it wrote down, which was nothing like what I said, was incredibly poetic. And so I, I just like in one night created about 12 poems that were complete nonsense, but had a great sound to them. And so something about something about air names was part of uh, one of the poems that kind of generated one of the pieces for that CD. So I called the CD Air Names. So then I decided about two years ago that I wanted to record fire names, earth names, and water names. And I decided to do fire names, and I decided that fire names would be a would be one very long kind of recital long length piece, 45 minutes to an hour long for horn with an electronic, you know, background. And I could go perform it at other at other campuses or wherever as a recital, one piece, me and my computer, uh, having a little click track in my ear and some speakers. So that turns out to have been a not bad idea since no one's together now. Right. Can't be together. So I have uh, about 40 minutes of the electronic part done. Uh I just, I have old fashioned staff paper working on the horn part and I have a hundred bars as of yesterday of the horn part and I'll record it here in my studio and hopefully get it done this summer. And then I'll put it out on CD. Well, I got to tell you, man, this is why I love creative people. I just, I think it's so interesting. I mean, just think about it. Most people who had a program like that, they buy it and they're just probably pissed off and never use it again or whatever. And you go like make poetry with it somehow and then like get inspired to write music. And now the horn world is going to have like some really cool horn and electronic music all because you had a shitty program that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how uh, things are serendipitous. But I mean, it's inspiring also because we all have a choice, you know? Yeah. We have a choice to just go, ah, oh, well, that sucked. All right, I'm going to do something else or I'm going to write a scathing letter to the people who sold me this or whatever it is. Or you could just make it cool. <laughs> Which is- I wish I could get my hands on that you know, dragon dictate version, whatever it was, very early version, because that's, it's a, it's pretty fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And I remember sitting in my apartment, which was like 19 houses ago for me, and saying like, today I went to the drugstore and bought cold medicine, and then whatever came out was this incredibly weird, expressionistic oddity. <laughs> a couple little grammar tweaks, and it became a poem. Have you always been like that? Like, were you always into maybe doing something a little bit different with it? Like playing songs by ear that you liked off the radio? Or, I mean, a lot of students, they start out playing the instrument and then they get bored with it because they really only play what's written for them. And at that point in junior high and stuff, it's just a bunch of goose eggs and the part sucks and nobody can even play it. But it's like, it seems to me that the musicians that I know that kind of learn to kind of play by ear and and kind of played along with songs they're the ones who who got motivated and curious and and took off imaginatively like that i did really like figuring out stuff by ear when i was a student um and i was pretty good at playing complicated rhythms so even in college i was playing you know being asked to do new music stuff Mm -hmm. um the people my age who really had huge new music careers mostly went to um, Eastman and then went to Stony Brook. And there was this huge new music crowd 
of, you probably know some of these people. And I, I was not, I didn't go to those schools. So I didn't have this new music focus, but I did do it. Um, and then I got to New York um, for grad school. And right after grad school, I joined Meridian, which was a year old or so, a year and a half old. And then that group started going in these crazy directions. And that's really what, what got me going. How did you get together with the Meridian? They, and they founded the group. John Nelson and Ray Stewart founded the group in 1987. Uh -huh. And they cycled through horn players. Uh, people kept leaving the group. And so in the, in, I joined in um, the spring of 89. So not much time had elapsed. They'd been through four or five horn players. Um, and they, um, they found me through Toby Hanks. I don't know if you know Toby Hanks, but he taught tuba at every school on the East Coast. He had five, five different schools, one each day. So he spent a lot of time on the, in the car and on the train. Yeah. And, um, and they called up Toby and they said, do you have anybody at, at Manhattan School of Music? Um, we need a horn player yet again. He had been the tuba player. The tuba player in Meridian had studied with him, so everybody knew Toby. And he taught the brass class at Manhattan School of Music. And he said, oh yeah, I just heard this guy you should, you should play with them. So I went and played with them for a couple hours and they asked me to join. And that was a lot of years ago. That was 1989. Wow, man. 31 years ago. Is that what it is? 31 years ago. And we, you know, we were playing the Etler Brass Quintet. And my first concert was the Etler Brass Quintet, the Ira Taxon Brass Quintet, and the John Stevens Seasons. So you guys didn't like hard music at all? <laughs> never played anything hard. <laughs> Exactly. And uh, John Stevens actually came for that, that particular concert, which was in New York and uh, ended cool. up being my colleague here at Wisconsin. Amazing. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I was going to say the group then got into playing jazz and then into playing Frank Zappa's music. And that's a whole different story. But we added a drummer and then the rest was kind of history. When did you start playing the horn? And was that your first instrument or did you play piano or anything? I played it? piano um, with no talent whatsoever. I'm very small. Um, I'm five foot four and with hands to match. And the piano would just, I couldn't, I couldn't reach an octave. Now I can reach an octave. What, did you stretch your fingers? Or? <laughs> no, I, I grew a little bit. But uh, I, so I played piano poorly. And then in fifth grade, I started the horn. So really basically my first... Um, interest and I started in in public school. Okay, did you enjoy it from the get-go or did it grow on you? I, I liked it and I got good fast which was fun. I was uh, always very competitive in a nice way with my best friend and he had started trumpet the year before I had been away. My dad had a sabbatical and I'd been away for fourth grade when everyone started an instrument. Okay. So then I could I came back and he'd played trumpet for a year and then I played horn. I could be competitive with him. That was fun. That's cool. That's Actually, what made me grow as a player was that uh, friendly competition in school and, and everything. And actually, growing up in Vegas, I mean, we would come up with some really interesting things in high school. We used to pool our money together, uh, five bucks per person. We had seven horns in the section. We'd give the five bucks to the band director at the beginning of the week, and we would have a etude of the week. We'd all play the etude for the band director, and whoever won got the pot. So, which was pretty good money when you were in high school. It was 45. Fantastic. Wow. So, you know, it was motivation to, to, to practice. I'm going to get 45 bucks at the end of the week, man, and for playing this etude well. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, you know, just fun stuff. So, uh, 
you said you went to Manhattan school. Yeah, I got my master's there. Okay, where'd you go before that? I got my bachelor's degree at Yale, so not even music school. Just I got a regular bachelor of arts degree. Oh wow! There's no performance major. I majored in music, but it's you know the academic side of music. Okay. And then you have to take a ton of other courses too. So I got a kind of a well-rounded education there, and and then I went to Manhattan school afterwards. Cool. So so did you start working in New York while you were at Manhattan? I mean, were you doing any shows or like it, around? So I was there from 87 to 89 at Manhattan school. And uh-huh. by by 89, I was starting to work. Okay. By 92, I was busy, busy, busy. Sure. Um, shows I played. Well, so when I got here to UW, I had to make an official a curriculum vitae for myself and so that involved going back and remembering what shows I had played so I played 36 different shows holy moly yeah I had my share of Broadway that's for sure and I did a lot of new music I got in with the new music crowd again I could play rhythms and so that's like oh this guy can actually play this stuff yeah um and so between playing gig there used to be gigs in New York like even even if you think pre pre uh, pandemic things had really changed they're always changing I mean they the commercial scene was ending when I started playing okay so um, I remember doing a brass quintet gig with Jim Pugh who's this unbelievable trombone player uh-huh. and he drove up in a Porsche and I was in the parking lot you know in with my Honda when he drove up to this gig. Uh, I said, oh my God, a Porsche. And he goes, yeah, that was the 80s. And I missed all that commercial scene. I just talked to Jerry Peel at length uh, not too long ago. And he yeah, was all about that, I'm sure. It was all about that, like uh, in that time. And it, like in the perfect time too, you know. It was the same in Vegas, actually. Like I came up in the freelance scene right when everything was uh, kind of dying down. <laughs> You know, I mean, there was still a good amount, but I mean, it wasn't like it was in the, in the, with the Rat Pack and like these guys, it was every casino had a house band and like, there was the relief band that went around and played all the different shows on their one day off. And, and these guys were making, you know, 2,500 bucks a week in the early eighties, just playing their stuff. So my, my buddy who was a really good friend of mine, uh, Tom Snelson, uh, just a great trumpet player and a real uh, big part in my musical life. He told me like, you know, he used to play shows and he would play for a month and then he would like go buy some land out in the outskirts of Vegas. You know, <laughs> it's like, what am I going to do with the money? I'll buy dirt. And, you know, yeah, all these little pieces of land that he was buying for like, you know, 2,500 bucks, five grand here, whatever. It turned into like half a million dollars 30 years later, you know, it's like for one piece of land. And uh, it was pretty incredible time for live music. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a very, in New York, there was a thriving uh, concert music scene, classical music scene. So there were lots of, you know, or full symphony orchestras, the Stamford Symphony, which would play eight full concerts, symphony-sized concerts a year. And by the time I left, they were playing three or four, and one of them was all strings. So that stuff had just really, really tapered off. But Broadway was going great guns, Mm -hmm. although with fewer people, because the size of the bands got smaller and smaller and smaller. But I was lucky that I 
I met somebody in a, at an audition who uh, gave me my first subbing work in his Broadway show, which was a show called City of Angels, which was the most fun I ever had. Uh, really? in a show because it was a it's a complete big band score. And, um, and I didn't know how to do that. So I sat there and learned on the job. You know, the first three times I played the show, I was in front of everybody. Yep. And I had to learn how to sit back and wait for zone, good, you know, wait for to get that feel and right. on the job training. And well, then I. If you don't, I mean, you're going to drive everybody nuts. And they won't have it back because it won't be an issue. You are a guy who plays all different styles on horn. There are people who do that on the horn, but there aren't enough of them. <laughs> you know, it seems like horn players just all want to stay in this like square little box all the time and not do anything different or avant-garde or, or even like hip or anything. You know, it's like, I'll leave that for somebody else or I'm above it or, or whatever it is. Now, I keep on saying now more than ever, but it is now more than ever. If you can't kind of do it all, you're going to, you're you're really hosing yourself you know well we'll see what happens with orchestras but you know students come in and you say what would you like to do with your professional life and they almost always say i want a job at an orchestra mm -hmm. and you go okay well how are you going to win that job right are you going to go and and miss notes on your audition because if you miss notes you won't win that job so you can't do that and you got to play in tune and you have to have perfect time and and it's hard and maybe you go to audition for your dream job and you're really ready, but you have a bad day. Yeah. And you don't get it. So it's, it's, I think it's really good to have dreams, but also alternate plans and lots of stuff going on and you see where you end up. Yeah. Or maybe you win that dream job and you realize I don't like this or I don't like the people I'm around. I mean, there's something to be said for enjoying what it is that you're doing also and not turning it into something, taking something that you love and turning it into something that you loathe. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah, it's supposed to be fun. It should be fun. And you know, when you have like your group or my group or, you know, the right orchestra section where it's really working, it's always fun. Mm -hmm. And then when it's not working, it's awful. So what were some of your most uh, fond jobs that you've done? Can you think of anything off the top of your head where it was like a really great musical experience or it was just a really great hang or you just had a really good time? Well, everything with Meridian was great. That's always been good. And playing for Frank Zappa was a highlight, which I can tell you about in a bit. Um, I got to play, um, there was, I think it was in the 90s or maybe the early thousands, that yes was touring and picking up an orchestra wherever they went you probably did that gig in vegas yeah i did yep so that was so great to see those tunes written down and it was and, fun to play man yeah it was so yeah. fun and there was a one trombone player and i were going ape shit it's like oh my god i can't believe we're playing this and everyone else was like oh it's hot out here you know it was an outdoor thing Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. No one cared. And then they did, I don't know if you remember, but they did a little sort of a folk set, an acoustic set in the middle. Yeah. The orchestra, I hope the orchestra was turned off the whole time. I hope that we were just for show because we were not adding anything good to what they were doing. <laughs> but we, we then would go off to the side and, you know, get off the stage for a little bit while they played 
thank God, without us. So I'm standing there. As I mentioned, I'm five foot four. And I'm standing there in the wings. And this guy who I tower over comes in. He goes, hi, I'm John. It was John Anderson come just introducing yes. him. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, that's a trip. It was great. Awesome. That was a great gig, for sure. Yeah. I remember playing that and I remember I was playing second horn to my friend Beth, who is, uh, she plays first on everything in Vegas. She's an amazing player and she's a big fan of yes also. So she knew the music. I knew the music, (laughs) but it was funny. Like one of the other horn players just didn't know the group, didn't know the music. And there were a lot of time signature change, a lot of stuff, like for just a, a, a normal, like classical horn player to go and, and play that gig like mind was blown and me and Beth are looking at each other like kind of giggling at parts because we were playing the shit out of it because we know the tunes <laughs> and it's like <laughs> the other person is just kind of like what is going on you remember you turn the page and it's gates of delirium and it's like oh that's how they're writing this now wow that's not how I heard it at all it's like 1916 bars and then 1716 bars and then whatever yeah it's stuff I imagine that's what all Meridian's music looks like, though. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it looks, yeah. The two hardest pieces that we played were the Carter Quintet, the Elliott Carter Brass Quintet, which is actually a bass trombone piece, but Ray played it on tuba. Ah. And then we commissioned a piece from Milton Babbitt. We commissioned um, a 10-minute piece, and he wrote us an 18-minute piece. Oh, that's... And, yeah, it was, and it's brutal. Changes... Uh, time signature every bar and it's got leaps and jumps and and he serialized the mute changes as well as the pitches and the dynamics so everything is like constantly changing with mute in and out and stopped and and uh and tempo changes and so we were invited to tanglewood to the new music festival to play both of those pieces so we played both those pieces on one program that was probably my most challenging concert damn that was fun (laughs) How often does Meridian get together now? Not very often now, unfortunately. We we all have jobs. Yeah. And it, it's really hard. At the most that you guys were getting together and you're making a lot of albums and stuff like that, what was your schedule like? Um, 1996, we were on the road for about six months of that year. Hmm. So hmm. we were doing a lot, but not making good fees. Um, and... At that point, after that very difficult year where we played a lot for not so much money, people started leaving, oh. and replaced them, and then be less happy with their replacement and bring them back. I left for a few months. Um, I can imagine a group like yours, I mean, it's very hard to plug somebody into that. I mean, you're, you're looking for a very specific type of player who can play Etler and who can play Zappa. And, you know, it is hard to be on the road. I've been fortunate enough to play with some very good groups, but I've always kind of like walked in while the, when, when the train was going full steam ahead already, you know what I mean? And I, I kind of shoveled my, my portion of the coal into the engine and everything, but it was already happening, you know? So, I mean, I, I just have a lot of respect for people like you being at the, at the forefront of the group 31 years ago. And it's like, and it's a group that's still happening and that has left a footprint. You know? Thank you. That's really nice to hear. I'll drink to that. Yeah, <laughs> me too, man. All right. Do you want to hear about how we got started with the Zappa stuff? Of course. And I want to hear about you guys playing for, I didn't know you played for Zappa. Yeah, twice. 
Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah I have to hear this. So the story starts when, so my colleague John Nelson and my close friend, John Nelson, he's uh -huh. a strong player, he's amazing. Yeah. And I tell my students, every group needs a John Nelson. He's the guy who says, what are we, what's on our next recording? He says that the day after the previous recording comes out, all right, what's next? When are we rehearsing? Where are we playing? Who are you going to call next week? And if you don't have a guy like that, you don't have a group. Exactly. Not yep. for long anyway. Yep. Plus he plays his ass off. He's an amazing musician and he's a wonderful guy. So anyway, he started um, getting into listening to Zappa's music uh -huh. and he found it funny and he found it inventive and he decided that we should play some of it. And we'd already added a drummer. So we had a drummer. And so he did, um, he arranged just sort of bit by bit. Also, he's a guy who decides to do an arrangement and a week later it's done. Yeah. Most people decide to do an arrangement and a year later it's done. Or it never gets done. Or it's never done. Yeah. So he arranged the set that's on Smart Went Crazy. Oh, really? He arranged all those? <laughs> he arranged all those. Wow. And, and we started with Tamirshi Duin and Dupree's Paradise, which are the final two tunes in the set that we play on that album. Mm -hmm. And and they were really cool. And we started recording, you know, recording meant you had a cassette, you know, a cassette player that you recorded with. Right. And we started recording concerts. And then he started, we started playing the music pretty well. So he would take the concert uh, recordings and he would dub them onto a new cassette without the applause and he would send them to Frank Zappa and say here's a rehearsal tape and he just kept sending him these rehearsal tapes which are actually concert tapes wow. and, one, and one day and John can tell you the date and time his phone rang and he goes hello and he hears this is Frank Zappa calling oh my god man and so Zappa called him and he said, I love what you're doing. I love, love that you're playing my music and you're playing it in the context of, he loved the Taxon Quintet. I don't know if you've ever played the Ira Taxon. Amazing, aggressive piece of modernist mayhem, high energy mayhem. And he's like, I love that Taxon Brass Quintet. That's the best piece of brass music I've ever heard. And I just love that you're playing my music in the context of this other stuff. And so keep doing it and let me know if you're ever going to be in L.A. Let's get together. Well, it so happened that we were in L.A. the next month and we went to his house in Laurel Canyon and we played. Uh, by that point, we had, I think we had recorded that first set and we had learned the second set, which is on, I forget what album, on Prime Meridian. So we played in the Prime set and then he gave us a three-hour coaching like no smiles, do this, do this, you're out of tune. Wow. You know, serious coaching. And then he said, you have to be more goofy with this music. It has to be a show in addition to being music. And, you know, we were contemporary musicians. We never thought that it should be a show. It's not a show. Mm -hmm. You know, it's serious music. And But he, like, taught us that we needed to have a good time with it. And at one point, his, his wife came in. They were having a margarita party upstairs and we were downstairs in the, the basement studio. So this little room for me is a basement studio, but he had like, it was like a orchestra rehearsal room size room down in the basement with full recording capability. And yeah. we were down there and his wife came in with a tray of margaritas and she said, should I give the boys margaritas? 
And Frank said, no, they're going to learn their part, and then you can give them a margarita. I love that, man. He was a total hard ass. You know, nobody thinks that guys like Zappa are like mainstream kind of like rock stars are serious. But you would know that if you listen to his music, because as goofy as he is, the music is intellectual. I mean, I'm just imagining how, how that must have been. He was a famous hard ass with his bands. That his band had a, had a John Nelson and the John Nelson was Frank Zappa. He kicked ass in there and they sounded good. Yep. He worked their asses. That is too cool, man. Yeah. So that was great. And so then we, and we knew that he had cancer at the time. And, um, but he was out and about. Mm-hmm. So then about nine months later, we uh, were back in LA and we called to see if we could come. And we talked to Gail, his wife, and she said, it's touch and go, but I'm going to call you if there's a, if you can come on Wednesday afternoon or whatever, I'll give you a call. And, mm-hmm. say, okay. and she called and said, you can come over. You can't stay for that long, but you can come. So we went over and he was bedridden. He was a complete wreck. And, but he wanted us to play the next set that we had. And he told us, you know, you had a, there's a little mistake on the Smart Went Crazy recording. And the mistake was, instead of the trumpets playing, dump, let's see, it was supposed to go, dump, da, 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 dump, but they played dump, 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 dump. But the tempo is dump, at that tempo, you heard that mistake. Wow. And John said, yeah, I know, I figured out that that was wrong after we made the recording. What are you going to do? So then he wanted to play us to play, and we were a little bit concerned. Like, is it okay? And he's like, play full blast. I'm okay. Yeah. So we played the next set, and then he shook all our hands, and we went off, and he died three weeks later. Oh, my gosh, man. What's incredible about that to me is that he could have very well just been like, oh, that's cute or whatever. And he obviously really listened to you guys. He obviously, like, enjoyed what he was hearing and listened over and over again to care about your group enough to invite you over when he's bedridden. I mean... Most people don't want to be seen when they're bedridden or they want to be with their family or they don't have time for that or whatever. And that's really, really special. (laughs) That's cool. And actually that makes me, you were asking about special concerts. That does make me think of another special concert if I could. Of course. We actually went back twice after his death and did house concerts there. And Gail, his widow at that point would invite people. So we were back doing the second one of those and she had invited, um, among other people, she invited a guy named Warren Cucurulo. And Warren had played guitar with the Zappa band. And he was in LA because Duran Duran had gotten back together. They had recorded a cover album Uh and they were promoting the album with five uh, weekday morning, 7 a.m. before school concerts at the House of Blues in LA. And so she invited Warren to hear us play and he re- was really into it. He loved, he loved uh, the Zappa stuff we were doing and the, and the Beefheart stuff we were, Captain Beefheart stuff we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, can you guys come tomorrow and play at like quarter of seven a.m. at the House of Blues, play a couple of tunes? And we said, sure, we would love to. So we arrive at, 6 a.m. and we pull up in this rental van and right at the same moment they pulled up in limos 
<laughs> it was him and then Simon LeBone was still doing it, you know, the, the singer of Duran Duran. And then it was a, a percussion. So they were doing like a way scaled down version, guitar, singer, and percussion. And so we go and we kind of, it's really early. So we, and we'd done this house concert the, next, the night before. So we're completely stiff and horrible. And we're all warming up. And I found a little spot on stage to play through some scales. And they were, and he and Simon were running through some tunes. So I did my scales in the right key of their tunes to not bug them. And they were doing a Led Zeppelin tune. And Warren goes, oh, that sounds great. Uh, why, you'll play a solo with us in this tune. Okay. He said, don't worry, I'll just nod to you when it's time for you to play and you play and then I'll nod when it's time for you to stop. Okay. Uh And then at like 20 of 7 a.m., they said, okay, everybody come to the back. Uh, Our big tune that we do, our big closing tune is 911. You remember that public enemy tune? Yeah. We do 911 and we want horn hits in that. And so... He, they play through the tune that goes, right here, you need some hits. And we like figured out who's going to play what under the gun, trying to remember the form of the tune so we know when to play. And uh, so then the con- it's time for the concert to start. And, and we go out and we start playing some Zappa and the place is packed. It seats about a thousand. Uh-huh. Every, it's all high school girls in there. <laughs> and they're screaming and we start playing and they stop screaming. Because we're playing Frank Zappa on brass instruments with a drummer, and they don't know what the hell is going on. So, you know, these guys know how to read a crowd. So Warren must have known that there's some trouble. So he goes out onto the balcony, and a spotlight follows him out. And he's wearing a white fur vest with nothing under it, and it's all open. And he's got a fresh shave on his chest and tight pants. Uh-huh. And he goes out there and he's like bopping like this with a big smile on his face. And the girls start screaming. And at that point, they decided we are a group that is supposed to be liked. And so they liked us. <laughs> and it was amazing. And when you play, you know, a Captain Beefheart tune and then they're just screaming, very satisfying. Man, I can't imagine that any other brass quintet has done that. <laughs> it's like. And it's not too likely. So we go backstage after our set, and then a stagehand comes and says, it's time for your song. And they're doing the Led Zeppelin tune. Mm-hmm. And, I, and they go, and they sit me down on the stage, and then they're doing the tune, and then Warren turns to me, and a spotlight comes on me, and I play a thing. And then he kind of nods me off, and I stop, and he looks and smiles at the audience, and they go completely apeshit. And, and then, you know, I go back and then we come out for 911 and we're frantically trying to remember. Right. We said we're going to play. And I remember thinking, I guess this is how some people learn music. Yep. If they don't write it down. It's amazing how many musicians that everybody respects and have written great songs. Well, you think about Paul McCartney, you know, his uh, working classical album. I don't know it. It's a really interesting album that probably came out in the early 2000s. And he wrote all this music and he had somebody like help him adapt it to orchestra and London Symphony recorded it. But it's beautiful music. It sounds like Debussy and it's just amazing. And it's like Paul McCartney wrote that, but he didn't know how to write it down, you know, and it's so many great musicians that work that way. Yeah. What a trippy story, man. I don't know if you know the music of Captain Beefheart, but he was an incredible musician and 
he um, coming out of the blues tradition and he he didn't read music and he apparently uh, we played a lot of his music it's incredibly complicated and I, I did a bunch of arrangements and I would you know I would listen to something literally 25 times trying to figure out what they were playing because it's very dirty mm-hmm. you know and and when when we rehearsed it we'd have to rehearse it for six months because it sounded it was way too clean and we had to figure out how to make it sound right but he apparently whistled the parts to his players Really? You just hit upon something that's like really important. When you're playing different styles of music, cleaner is not always better, (laughs) especially when you're playing the horn. There's nothing more cringy to hear (laughs) than like super ricky-ticky perfect. Like uh, that's why so many people have tried to like cover like Kenton tunes and nobody sounds better in the Kenton band playing that stuff because the Kenton band was not like Gordon Goodwin's band and Gordon Goodwin's band is like amazing. I mean, but they just sound like fucking clean, man. Just so good. And the Kenton band, you listen to those albums and you hear those melophoniums all out of tune and all this stuff, but it was dirty and it was fun and it was awesome. And there's something to be said for that. But I, have to admit, I learned a lot about playing those kinds of styles, playing Broadway shows with people from the jazz world, playing jazz shows and knowing how to do it. When you were playing Broadway stuff, how did you keep it fresh? I had a big problem with that. Yeah. I, I could not keep it fresh. Mm. I, I, uh, I was an unhappy Broadway player. And I played two shows hundreds and hundreds of times, Beauty and the Beast oh. and, and, yeah, and Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and it was very hard for me. I got very dark. Even when I started playing Phantom, which was probably around... 95 or 96 uh-huh. it had already been running a long time so a lot of the people in the band were were really kind of burnt out and they were nice but they were like they were trying to get through right they were trying to get through by doing whatever they did to get through and probably ben trombone player in meridian who's now retired he um he loved it he loved going in and trying to do his best every single show mm-hmm. that was great for him and that was not, I did never enjoy doing that. And I did a lot, I had a lot of variety of shows, which was good because I just couldn't take it. And I played the first six months of the Lion King and that, that pit was kind of a mess and I think still is. And that was torture. And I left that show very unhappily and they got another horn player who left after a few years Jeff Scott was the second horn player. He left after a few years. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, they've gone through, for a show that was clearly going to run till the end of time, they've had a surprising amount of personnel turning over because of the, the, the not fun scene there. Well, I don't know about you, uh, and you don't have to say if you don't want, but there were some shows that I played where it was, conductors don't realize the power that they have over the musicians that are around and it's like when they they're only human but it's like when you've got a conductor who's pissed at like a singer or something and then they got the scowl going the whole time and then everybody in the orchestra thinks that they're the ones being scowled at and then it becomes this whole like kind of a shit show in the pit you know and then you have to come back the next day and then you have to come back the next day i mean i could see how it could get super dark after a while. I played one show and I won't say which one it was, but the conductor um, in this one particular, he was a good conductor. 
Mm -hmm. This one particular performance, he did not look at the orchestra in Act One. <laughs> and it was what you're talking about. He was mad about something. Yeah. And it really casts a pall. Well, everybody thinks in their own head that maybe it's them. Yeah. And when 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 you're trying to do a good job <laughs> and you've been doing it for a long time and the morale is easily pushed down and then you've got that in front of you to deal with it's like after a while it's like yeah i don't care how good the paycheck is i don't want to be here right now <laughs> yeah you know i would often think this is this is not why i'm doing this right but then then i had a kid and so i needed to really make money and so you do it because you need to make money yep and that's too bad let me go on to something a little bit happier <laughs> Mm -hmm. I did play Phantom like for six years, man. Almost seven years. Know, right? One horn or three? Three horns. You are the real version. Yeah, yeah. And I, I played like 1,700 shows or something like that. You know. Yeah, you remember when the three horns in unison go up to that high stuff? Right. And someone's playing a descant horn all on the high side and other people aren't. And it's like the intonation right. just enough to... Oh, I know. Yeah, I totally, man. So I wanted to go on to a different subject, like something yeah. a little bit happier. When you were coming up as a musician, who were some of your favorite players, like people to listen to? And it doesn't necessarily, I'm sure that they weren't all horn players and stuff, but as a horn player, who did you admire and, and listen to? And then just musician-wise, who did you listen to? My go-to horn player, and remember that I'm enough older than you that when I say I listen, we're talking about LPs and we're not talking about going to Spotify, you know. <laughs> My go-to guy was Barry Tuckwell, who I am so sad that he died recently. And I did get to meet him and he was an amazing horn player. And by the way, I asked him how much editing there is in his Weber concertino recording. And he said, we couldn't really edit. I mean, we just, it was so hard to make those edits. We just did big chunks of music. Oh That's my God. But he was, I always tried to sound like Barry and never succeeded, but I loved the way he sounded. And I loved how, how incredibly clean and precise uh, Dennis Brain's playing was. Mm -hmm. And then I would go through these, you know, cycles of listening to a particular thing just every day after school. I'd listen to uh, Glenn Gould, the second Goldberg variation recording. Must have listened, you know, 300 times to that. And, um, Richard Stoltzman playing the Brahms clarinet quintet. Mm. Speaking of unusual musicians for his instrument, totally unusual clarinet player. Wow. Um, and yeah, more, I, you know, I, there weren't that many horn recordings. It just wasn't like today. Right. So I didn't have, and I grew up in a t completely different from you, a tiny little town. So there, there was my teacher and that was it for hearing Williamstown, Massachusetts, ah. population 6,000. <laughs> you think it's gone up or down lately? No, stayed the same. Stayed the same. <laughs> Still exactly the same. <laughs> yep. So, you know, there was nothing going on and nobody to hear live. Uh -huh. The nearest city was Boston, which was two, two, almost three hours away. So it was whatever I could find on recordings and mostly it was pieces get really into Brahms second and really into Beethoven symphonies and 
I remember going to the record store in high school and seeing a Beethoven symphony and saying, well, I like Beethoven. I think I'll get this. You know, it's like Beethoven seventh or something. I've never heard of the piece before. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I was kind of on my own to find, to find rap and, you know, find horn players and stuff like that. Did you have any favorite groups, like any favorite chamber groups or like favorite uh, orchestras or? Not really. I was more focused on repertoire, on pieces that I really liked. Okay. I didn't really listen to rock music in high school at all. I listened to the Beatles a little bit, but that was it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until college and, and after that I got much more into listening to rock and roll, which I now absolutely love listening to. Um, what did your parents do? I'm just, I'm just curious because you seem like this like a like a really intellectual type guy, and it seems like you must have had some of that around the house. You know? Yeah. So Williamstown is a college town. Williams College is there, which is an incredible small liberal arts college. Um, and my dad at the time was a math professor there. Mm -hmm. My parents are still alive. They're still together. They live in New York, and my dad's now a math professor at age 84 at Teachers College at Columbia. Wow, man. He's still a math professor, and my mom also worked at the college. And so, yeah, it was very much a college milieu that I grew up in. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm getting that that vibe from you, though. I mean, it's like, you know, like you're the kind of person who wants to know how things tick. It seems like once you start something, you're going to see it through to completion, uh, like that kind of thing, you know. That's because of the people I've had been fortunate to work with. That's all of their influence. It's not me. Like John Nelson, who I'm talking about, such an influence on me to see somebody think through a project and actually do it. Because I didn't do a lot of independent projects before. I, you know, I could play the horn, so I got asked to do things and I did them. Right. And now here, my colleague, Mark Hetzler, who is our trombone professor and he played for 17 years with the Empire Brass Quintet. He's another guy. He says, I'm going to arrange so-and-so. And I go, okay. And then the next day, there's a part on my stand. It's incredible. Or John Nelson produced a recording for Factory Seconds. I don't know if you know that group. They're no. the second players in the Cleveland Orchestra. So they made a brass trio album and John produced it. And like, I happened to be passing through Buffalo a week after the sessions. John lives in Buffalo. He's like, let me play you this. And he'd already edited it a week later. That's a real admirable trait of people. And I think that it's so admirable because it's difficult. I mean, we all know it's difficult. It's easy to say, I'm going to do something. Everybody says that. Oh, I'm going to paint my house. I'm going to do the garden. I'm going to arrange a tune. But going through the process and seeing it through to completion is a whole other story. And the people who do that consistently are very impressive people and they're usually very successful people and uh, I think that that's something that anybody listening myself included can always think about that we need to do more of you know just to better ourselves well I think people who make their way to watching this conversation probably know you already and they know that you've done an incredibly large number of projects and and that's really admirable that's an inspiration to me when I see you playing jazz tunes or improvising on the Wagner tuba and doing all these great arrangements. And you, you arranged Wayward Son. You gave me that arrangement and then I turned it into a smaller group because I didn't have quite enough people. Oh, that's uh, cool. And, and, but you did that and that's, you know, there's a lot going on in that tune. That's not an easy arrangement to do. Yeah, man. It's so good for your ears. 
you know i mean when i decided i wanted to do that that was a long time ago at least a decade ago now i think and i just remember being in my car listening to listening to the classic rock station <laughs> and i was like dude how cool would that be with like horns it was just like what we're talking about it was like oh okay well it can either be like a thought in my head like how cool would that be and then when i hear it again a year later i'll think oh how cool would that be again or i could have it done all it takes is sitting down and doing it and it makes you a better musician you know i mean the way i did i don't know how you transcribe stuff or arrange stuff but that's more of a just straight up transcription and i just listened to it over and over again and just like <laughs> i was picking out lines and, and writing them down you know and it's it's so like it's so cool to hear stuff that you've never heard in a tune before yep you've always passively listened to it i love that or whatever and then you 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 actually go through the process of transcribing it and you're like holy shit man there's so much going on that i didn't even hear before yep you know yeah i don't know if you remember i did a couple of years ago i did africa by toto mm. and then i posted on horn people like i've got this arrangement for eight horns of africa you uh -huh. know anybody wants it just let me know right and then uh, like 10 minutes later, I heard from the administrators, like, you can't do this. You must take this down. But in the meantime, 50 people had asked for it or a hundred or something like that had asked for this thing. Right. And, you know, so I'm not making money. No one's making any money off of this anyway. It's, you know, so, um, it, so we're not taking any money away from that band. Right. And people are hungry to play this stuff and it's fun. But, you know, it's funny because we, so we play rock and roll in, in, I was telling you this the other day, we play in the horn choir rock and roll every spring. Right. The, the horn choir becomes twisted metal. That's what we call ourselves. And we're a rock band and all the students do arrangements and I do arrangements. And we sound horrible when we, at first. And even though they know what the song sounds like, we're not used to playing in that way. It's right. a very different way to phrase and, and to feel the music and, Everybody knows Africa. I mean, everybody knows that tune. You can't escape, even if you don't listen to rock and roll, you can't escape that tune. Everybody knows that tune. And yet, when you sit down to play it, that's how we're taught to play. Right. And it's hard to get away from. And the greats get, the great players have a style. I keep going back to Meridian, but I mean, I just... It was very influential to me when I was in high school listening to your albums. I, I graduated in '96, you know, so I'm not I'm not young, but at the same time, your music was out already, and I listened to it, and it was some of the first horn playing that I had heard that was not proper. <laughs> quote air quotes. I'm air quoting for those who are just <laughs> listening, but I mean, it's just like you hear this playing, and it's like, yeah, that's how I wanted to hear it, and I'm so glad he played it that way. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta, you gotta start by figuring out what it should sound like. And in order to do that, you gotta get out of your box somehow. You gotta get out of your technique box and start with, it should sound like this. And then you go, okay, let me play it. And then you play it and then you go, oh, it didn't sound like that. Yeah. And then you gotta figure out, you know, how to make it sound like that. And that requires what you said, like directed listening. I forgot what the term you use was, but you got to really listen to what the person you're imitating is doing to figure out how they do it. I mean, when you listen to rock singers, for instance, there's, there's more ornamentation than a Baroque oboe player uses when they play a, you know, an old piece of music. 
yeah. it's heavily ornamented, ornamented with scoops, especially scoops up to notes and falls off or like Alanis Morissette, you know, if you're oh, trying yeah. to, but it flips up at the end of notes. Yep. And, um, and if you're not doing that stuff, you're not playing the style. Well, and you're not making the tune your own. That's one of the greatest things about being a musician is that this is your voice. It might be a horn or it may be a trumpet or an oboe or a bassoon or whatever, but it doesn't mean that as soon as you get that in your, in your hands, your, your spectrum is like super narrow, you know, being a musician is more than just learning to operate an instrument. Two musicians. Okay. Louis Armstrong and Chet Baker. <laughs> Both of them, you can barely tell whether they're singing or playing. It sounds exactly the same. So it's clear that they got something in their head and that thing is generating what they do, whether it's playing an instrument or singing. And that's what we should be all doing. And this, this the pandemic time when everybody's locked up and they're just alone with their instrument, that's the time when they should be doing it. That's why I wrote my drill book. I try to help people get the skills so that they could do that work. Where can people find that drill book? Do you have a uh, website? It's Dave Weiner's uh, I think it's BrassArts.com. Okay, awesome. BrassArts Unlimited is the name of the publishing company. So I know that you're teaching in Wisconsin right now. Where did you teach before that? I taught, so before this, I taught at the Hart School in Hartford, Connecticut mm -hmm. um, for 14 years, I think. And for the last four or five of those, I also was the chair of contemporary performance at Manhattan School of Music. They developed a program where you got a master's degree in contemporary performance rather than in horn or trumpet or oboe or piano. So it's all contemporary music with its own faculty. And it was an amazing program. Um, so I ran that program for, I think, four years. And before I did that, and that whole time I also taught at Hart. And before that, before I had the job at Manhattan, I taught at Princeton University, just teaching horn lessons for students who wanted to take horn lessons. It wasn't even a course, but that's where I started teaching when I was about 26. Oh, wow. They asked me to go teach there, and that was really fun, really smart kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. It seems like you've always been uh, associated with the smart universities, so. though. I mean, going to I, Yale I, and teaching. I, I, yeah, I like that college environment. I'm very used to it, and yeah. and... It's one of the things that's great about being here at UW is that there's just a ton of smart people around it. You seem to have a really good relationship with your students. Uh, I mean, especially what you were just, what you were talking about towards the beginning of the podcast, you're offering up lessons to those who are inspired enough to want to take them this summer and everything. I mean, I think that that's, that's, really uh, a cool thing to do for the students. And I'm guessing that a lot of them are taking you up on that. Yeah, I've been associated with some of your students throughout the years and they talk a lot about you. So, but nice. like, yeah, I, I had a, a friend uh, in Vegas, actually, she went to UNLV, Erin. Uh, yeah. And she would talk about you all the time. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You studied with Dan Boy because I knew who you were, but I didn't, you know. But she only had the best things to say about you. And she talked about you like you were like one of her family members and stuff. So uh -huh. before we've even talked, I could tell that your students are really fond of you. And now that we've been talking, 
knowing all the things that you do for the university and for your students, just out of the goodness of your heart, not even trying to, you know, charge for lessons or something like that, or just trying to find the money to get a student a new horn. Uh, from, where is he from? Nigeria, yeah, Lagos, Nigeria. But that's, this is talented. People will be seeing him. That's he's awesome. Really good. He's really good. Well, anyway, I mean, I can't say enough about about people like you who are uh, making a difference, not just musically, but in the lives of musicians. I'm not a teacher at any universities or anything, but I do get jealous of that because of the footprint that you leave and that you're able to leave. And someday I hope I'll be able to do the same thing in that kind of setting. But it's important for people who are going to schools to realize that it's not just the name of the school, but it's also the people that you're studying with and the quality of character that's important. That's nice. I mean, I like to hear that. It's definitely, it's, you know, when you're down in the trenches with your students, it's hard because you remember all the frustrations that you go through, like trying to learn how to play low notes and then trying to learn how to play high notes. And it's, 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 it's hard. Right. It's a hard thing that we do. And, uh, and so you're just trying to fight through with the students and try to figure out what is the thing that's going to make it click because it never works to tell them how to do it. It just doesn't work. They, you have to guide their figuring out how to do it. Right. It's like writing a novel. You know, you can't tell somebody how to write a good novel. You can say, well, your novel must have structure, but that's not helpful at all. <laughs> right. You know, so it's, it's just, uh, it's, what, what I'm trying to say is it's really nice to hear what you say because cause it's nice, but because day to day you're fighting it out and trying to make it happen for people. I have to say this summer making this deal where I'll teach you, but you, your end of the deal is you're working your ass off. Yeah. Um, and they're doing it and it just seeing the results come fast like that is incredible. It really is is satisfying. And then, you know, to be a, a musician and get paid a salary. And right now I know how fortunate I am because nobody else earning any money. And I can't believe it's like, I say to my wife every day, I don't deserve it. I have this job and I definitely don't deserve it. And I'm still earning a salary and that's not fair at all. But, you know, I'm also really happy that I was lucky <laughs> enough to, to get it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would argue with that. I mean, the way that I know that you're deserving of that is that you're an inspiring teacher and that you're proactive. And there are a lot of people out there, you know, they get their tenure and they become very complacent. They get these music students and they're fulfilling their uh, quota and they send these kids off with a bunch of debt into the world with no jobs. And they've only taught them kind of what was relevant 30 years ago. Really well, I, I think a lot about the fact that I'm very, I mean, I'm the major professor of these students, right? So I'm, the, I'm their mentor. And if you're from Wisconsin, you'd be very cheap by American standards. Um, it's, you know, it's like 10,000 bucks a year in state. It's not a ton of money. But of course, that's a lot of money by the same token. Right. And it's way more if you're from out of state. But they're still, they're paying this money to get an education and I'm responsible for that education largely. Right. And that's daunting. And I like when people who are professors think about like, what am I going to give this person? So if you were not a musician, what, what would you be doing? 
Yeah, so I have a, a brand new hobby, um, which is woodworking. Really? Woodworking, yeah, it's really fun, yeah. Like building furniture? Or? Well, I, I just started. So the, the, the background to this is that I was in the fall semester, I was on sabbatical and we were in Paris. And I had all the time in the world. And I was learning about electronic music more. I was deepening my knowledge. Uh-huh. I was watching all kinds of videos, but I was also practicing the horn. And, w- but with no, con- it was like now, right? No concerts or anything like that. Right. And so I was just on my own. And so when I'm just on my own, I like to have something going to watch on a video with the sound off while I practice. So don't tell my students that because that's not the highest concentration. But I like doing that. And I started watching these woodworking videos. I started by watching people turning a lathe and and making things on the lathe. And that was mesmerizing. And then from there, I got into people building stuff out of wood. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I watched a lot and I learned a lot. And so when I came home, I bought equipment for my own wood shop, which is right there next door. No way. and I started making stuff. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so I really like doing that a lot. What, what have you made so far that you like? I just started. So the first thing I made is I made a little table for my dog. My dog, she's kind of tall, and she ate off a, a Tupperware thing that was this high and that was ugly. And we wow. put her right on top of it. So I built her an oak table, <laughs> the same height, like six inches off the ground. And then my brother, who's a cellist, said, well, my dog would like a table as well. <laughs> dog his dog is tiny, tiny, tiny. So I just finished, a t- and, he's, and so my brother's a cellist. He said, my dog Victor would like a table with F-stops in it, and he would prefer F-stops in Stradivarius's design. And then he sent me a little image of Stradivarius's F-stops. So I printed it out bigger and, and stenciled it onto wood, and I carved out Stradivarius style f-stops and I made him a little f-stop table that's awesome that was my second project and now I'm just making a little outbox where we put outgoing like actual mail that needs to go out of the house yeah I know what you mean by those those videos are so satisfying to watch when and especially when it's like in like four times speed or something like that and you just see the thing like forming like in your eyes like what is have you ever seen those videos of those guys like I don't know if they're like in Africa or somewhere and they, they like build swimming pools and they build all this stuff, like just out in the middle of nowhere. And it's, yeah, Oh yeah. 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 When they're digging and digging. Yeah, right? dig- and yeah. Everything is done like in like 10 times as fast or something. Yeah. So it's like you watch a guy make a, an entire like mud hut in about 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's so in- intriguing to watch. There's yeah. no sound of the video. There's, you just hear like that. Yeah. And they've got millions of views. And I keep on thinking, I'm wondering, I wonder if this guy, like in Africa, making this hut and this pool in, in the mud, if this is his YouTube account and he's making like a million dollars a year off of ad oh. revenue. <laughs> Let's hope. But you know, we have no skills. Like you and I, we know how to play a French horn, right? which is a worthless skill It is in, in any kind of real world. Oh. And I go through phases of being very pessimistic about what's happening in the world. And, and I think, you know, thank God for society because I don't know how to do anything. Well, now I'm learning how to do some things that actually are useful. And that's a great feeling. Yeah. Like a, like a, like a physical trade. Like, exactly. Yeah. And I watched a guy make a bow 
like bow and arrow uh-huh. the other day and I was like shit I maybe I need to learn how to make a bow and then shoot it depending on how bad we get <laughs> that's true <laughs> but yeah no I I like doing that and then for hobbies I don't know what else I do I you know I have a 16 year old son so we hang out a lot and oh that's cool that's cool and yeah I mean now my hobby is like walking my dog and going for runs and getting out of the house and where I live, we're now on another upswing of COVID. So, oh boy, it's, it's gonna, like yeah. that's kind of everywhere. Sometimes it's a little confusing as to like, have we decided this thing is not a thing anymore, or are we still? I mean, what what are people doing? I I don't get it. Sometimes I I live in Utah, and the other day I went to the store, and people try to be responsible and got their mask on. And it's like I'm thinking, oh, I'm gonna go to the store, and there won't be that many people. It was, it looked like a normal day at the store to me. And it's just like, so tell me again why my career is at a standstill then if everybody is going around doing their own thing. Aren't we all supposed to be <laughs> trying to keep, nip this thing in the butt? I don't know. Yeah. Well, uncertainty is not something we're good at. Yeah. Well, and people get bored with it too. Yeah. Well, and we so- were a very impatient society in yeah. the U.S. Definitely. I mean, we're not digging a swimming pool with a stick. We bring a backhoe in because we want to get it done in an afternoon. And outwitting a virus takes patience. Right. Because it's got the advantage in numbers. It's happy to wait us out. Yeah, virus doesn't get bored. It doesn't get bored. It'll go slow if we, you know, flatten its curve. And then when we unflatten, it'll come roaring back and... And, and we're, it has a lot more patience than we do. So actually, I, I do a lot of dishes in the house. I, my wife doesn't like doing dishes, and I want to do the dishes because I find it kind of calming. Uh-huh. Because it's unlike the tasks we do in our practice rooms, it actually ends, at least temporarily. Like, <laughs> you do the dishes, and then you, you, you run the dishwasher, and you're done for yeah. now. Yeah. And, but I always did the dishes really fast, like, like there's something else to get to. And now in the pandemic, I've realized, you know what? There's not that much to get to. Like I'm going to do the dishes and then I'm going to do another thing that has to be done. Like I have to do the taxes. And so I'll put the taxes together. And then I got to do another thing, which is, you know, finish this transcription. And then when I'm done with that, I got to practice. And then I got to, there's no reason to hurry frantically through these tasks. So I'm trying to learn patience and I, I'm going slow now I do the dishes I move slow mm. if someone's joining me if my son is helping me I'm like okay you can help but I'm going really really slow just so you know yeah. and uh, I've actually really enjoyed not being at a New York City pace in daily life during the pandemic yeah man that's so cool well man maybe I'll have to commission a, a, a woodwork from you oh yeah <laughs> that would be awesome you know, don't commission it just ask Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not, my stuff is not worth money at this point. It's really satisfying. You know, you take these pieces of wood. I went and I've been in one store in the last four months. I went into the lumber store one time. Other than that, I have not gone into a store. Wow. Everything we do curbside here. But I went into the lumber store and picked out these, uh, these boards. And, you know, you can get them finished where they do the finishing uh, and you pay them for it. Or you can get them just kind of raw. So I get them raw because I have a jointer and a planer. So you have these boards and they're all rough. And then at the end of a couple of weeks, you have something that's kind of beautiful and done and it has some flaws, but who cares? And 
yeah. it's really, really satisfying. You know, we don't have to do it fast. Right. We can do it slow. Smell the roses. Yeah. And it's nice when you're practicing too, to like spend 20 minutes on a C major scale, one octave, just making every note perfect over and over and over again. What the hell else are you going to do? <laughs> that's right, man. No, that's the way it is. I mean, I'm not going to run out and go try to sell stocks and, you know, whatever. That's not me. So right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm practicing a C major scale. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Well, words to live by. <laughs> this has been such a great pleasure, man. Thank you so much for hanging out. It's all mine. It's been a great conversation. Okay. Later. Bye. Bye.